Well, amen. Thank God, because of Jesus, He does hear our plea. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John. We'll be starting a new sermon series this week. We began um, about five weeks ago a journey through our vision uh, series, a vision for our church. But we've come to the end of that time, and now we're starting a new series in the book of First John. Not to be confused with the Gospel of John, it's the same author. But I want you to know that I'm excited about this series. I love this book because I believe God uses it to do something just incredibly special uh, for those of us that know Him. You see, God inspired John to write a book to help us have assurance and clarity about our salvation. You see, I was 17 years old. It was my first ministry position. I was an intern at a church in Mississippi, youth intern. And I was in a youth high school Sunday school class. And there was a man who had been uh, a believer. He claimed for 30 years, was a deacon in the church. And he began to preach and teach the, the class. And as he was teaching, He got to this idea of assurance and how we can know that we're saved. And he said this. He said, you know, how can anybody really know? He said, I think I'm 75% sure that I'm going to heaven. Uh, I've been in church a long time. I've served God a long time. I feel like I've been a good person. And I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm headed that way. But who really knows, right? And as I heard that as a 17 year old boy, I couldn't be silent. I, I thought to myself, what a travesty. What a travesty, because I believe this and I know this. God has given us his word, and one of the functions is this, is that he desires that we can be assured that we know him, that that we can have confidence as we prepare to stand before Jesus Christ. And this book of 1 John helps us do that. It is filled with phrases like this, phrases like, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. From all unrighteousness, past, present, and future. It's filled with ideas like this. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. By this we can know. Here's a sign. You see, here's another one. See what kind of life the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Once we are adopted into the family of God, there is no going back. God has secured our salvation for us. And then lastly, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before Him in 1 John 3. And so throughout this book, there are these ideas, there are these phrases and sentences that show up over and over again to help us see there is a theme here. There's a theme that that John is dealing with. And it's very simply this. There are three key markers for every believer or child of God. There are three things that, that set us apart from just other religious people. The first one is correct belief or doctrine. You see, I can believe a lot of things about God, but if I don't believe the truth about God, it doesn't help me. The same way, just like this, I can know a lot of things about the human body, right? I can believe a lot of things, but if I believe certain things that are untrue, it can harm me, it can hurt me. If I believe that I can fly, and I put on a cape, and we go up, and you guys go outside, and I go to the top of the church, we all know that's not going to end well for me, right? We need to operate in truth. This is what we must do. And so we must be marked by correct belief, correct doctrine. The second thing is correct action or obedience. That as we are saved, after we're saved, we will bear fruit. 
There is spiritual fruit that should be worked out in our lives as believers. And then lastly, we should be marked by love, by the love of God for one another. These are things that John repeats over and over again. And again, he's writing historically to help a congregation understand these things because of this. You see, really, there's nothing new under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes was right. People doubt and twist the gospel today. And guess what? People doubted and twisted the gospel in the early church. You see, there was a teaching that was going around and rising up in one of the churches that John had planted. And, and the teaching was something like this. You see, Jesus was probably not actually a real physical person. You see, there was a teaching that said, if the world is fallen, which the Bible does teach, they took it a bridge too far. They said everything in the world must be completely and totally stained by sin. And so God would never put on a physical body. God would come, and if he was to manifest himself, he would be a spirit. He would be some sort of apparition. But he wouldn't take on flesh. God wouldn't do that. And so that teaching became known as Gnosticism. And this is likely one of the things that that John is pushing back against. And he's saying, so look, here's how you can tell yourself apart from those people with false doctrine. Here's how you can know whether you're walking in the light or you're walking in the darkness. So I believe John's word is incredibly important to us today. People were asking many of the same questions then that they do today. Is Jesus really real? How do we know that what we have is reliable? Today we're going to see in 1 John some of his answers to those questions. Go ahead and stand in honor of the reading of God's word, 1 John chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4 together. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord says this, that which, we have, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for your perfect, inerrant, infallible to us. God, we thank you for your word that has been preserved throughout millennia so that we can know, so that we can be confident, so that we can be assured. And so, Lord, as we come now and as we open your word, we pray, God, that you would speak. God, that the the words that come from my mouth this morning would not be my own, but that you would use them for your glory. God, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you would bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so a sure faith, a sure faith rests upon the reality of the incarnation and trusting the eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ and then maintaining that fellowship with him. A sure faith rests upon three things. Number one, the reality of the incarnation, that this is history. These are facts. These are not just nice stories that we must then take these facts and make a decision. What will I do 
with what the Bible says. Will I trust it or will I reject it? So we must trust that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. And then lastly, we must maintain fellowship with him. Not that we can lose our salvation, but that maintaining of that fellowship works itself out in our daily lives. You see, faith is necessary, but it doesn't have to be uninformed. Faith is necessary, but it doesn't have to be uninformed. There is good and sound reason to believe Jesus died and rose. John shares it in these verses, and I want to share it with you today. So this morning, if you will, put your thinking cap on with me, okay? We're going to uh, go a little deep for just a minute. We're not going to stay there too long. We're going to come back up and resurface for air, okay? But we are going to look at uh, some evidence, historical evidence for Jesus Christ. And then we're going to also look at biblical evidence, okay? We're going to look at historical evidence, the historical fact of Jesus Christ. First thing that we need to understand is that there is, in fact, if you didn't know this, there is evidence that Jesus was a real man, that he walked on the earth as a real person. Um, there are men who wrote, historians, who wrote right after, shortly after the life of Jesus, after he was died. They recorded facts about him in their accounts of literal history. One of the most famous was a, a man who was a Jewish person. Jewish evidence uh, by the man of Flavius Josephus was his name. Flavius Josephus. And he said this in one of his historical accounts. He actually mentions Jesus at least twice. But he talks about James and he's talking about the brother of James, Jesus, and how he was causing problems in the Jewish provinces, and he says, James, the brother of Jesus, and then he kind of says in quotes, the so-called Christ. And that's significant because what he's saying is this. Jesus was famous enough, he was a, an important enough figure that by mentioning him, the so-called Christ, again, he's a Jewish person, he doesn't accept him as the Christ, but by mentioning him, that identifies who James is. That helps people understand and know who James is. You see, Jesus was famous throughout the Roman Empire. So there's Jewish evidence, but there's also Roman evidence. A man by the name of Tacitus, writing also as a historian. Uh, and he's speaking of Christians very unkindly. He's talking about the problems that they have and, and how foolish they are as he writes. But he clearly and factually states this. He says that Pontius Pilate was governor when Jesus was killed and that Tiberius was the emperor as Jesus was executed. Again, trying to historically and chronologically give an account, not necessarily focusing on Christians. He speaks of this. And so there is historical realities. There are historical evidences of Jesus Christ, that he was a real man. In fact, there appears to be no debate in the ancient world about Jesus Christ. There is no one who says, really, in any kind of historical sense, that Jesus was not a real man. But now I want us to see the Christian evidence. The Christian evidence. And this is important. You see, the New Testament, just the New Testament, not the Old, the New Testament alone has over 6,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts that testify over and over and over, faithfully, with very little variation of who Jesus is. 6,000, that's significant. Here's why. Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars. Guess how many fragments or manuscripts we have of that? Just under 12. This accepted as history. Aristotle's Poetics, the great philosopher. We have less than 10 copies of his writings of the Poetics. Socrates, the father of philosophy. We have zero, zero writings of Socrates. A man by the name of Vodibachum helped put these facts together. 
And I just want to share these with you because this, I think, is so significant. There are no surviving writings of Socrates. The way that we know about Socrates is by what is recorded through a friend, Plato, another philosopher. So Socrates, a historical figure, a historical fact accepted throughout the universities, zero. The New Testament, 6,000. 6,000 manuscripts. So there is little doubt, friends, that Jesus lived and died. There's little doubt of that. But here's the more interesting question today that you and I need to hear. What about did Jesus die and live? See, there's little historical doubt. Jesus was a man and he died. But did Jesus die and live? I would say yes. That's why I'm here today. I don't know about you. And so the reason that we know this, let's look at 1 John. Let's look at what John is saying. So we have historical evidence, but then we also have this. We have eyewitness accounts. And that's what John is providing to us. Look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, okay, which we have seen with our eyes physically, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You see, John is stressing these physical qualities. I touched Jesus. I saw Jesus with my eyes. He's saying to us today, I saw the incarnated Christ walking on the earth. I heard him speak and teach. I heard him and I saw him touch and heal the lame. I saw him break bread and feed it to 5,000 people. I was there. This is what John is saying to us. He says, I saw him before he died as he was beaten and scourged. And I saw him as he hung on a cross and was killed and crushed for the world. And then he says this, I saw him after he rose. I saw Jesus after he rose. I touched his wounds after he was raised from the dead. I ate fish with him on a seashore after he was risen. This is important stuff. This matters. If Jesus didn't really die physically on a cross, if his blood physically was not shed for you and for me, then guess what, friends? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, we're still in our sins. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is our living hope. And so some of you may be thinking, well, this is all well and good, Michael. But what we really need is scientific evidence in order to have real reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. We would need, some science, we would need to use the scientific method. We need some harder evidence. And I would say this, there's only one problem to that. There's only one problem. No one uses the scientific method to demonstrate historicity to demonstrate historical facts, because what you have to do, there are three pillars in the scientific method. It has to be observable, it has to be repeatable, and it has to be measurable, right, if we're going to be people of science. And so if I take this piece of paper, we can do a science experiment right here today. Guess what? What's going to happen if I drop this? It's going to fall. See? That is measurable, it is observable, and it is repeatable. Guess what? History is not. It's not repeatable, right? We can't go back and repeat it. C.S. Lewis said it this way. You can't use the scientific method to prove, excuse me, he says it this way. Every historical statement is believed on authority. None of us has seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Spanish Armada, but we believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. You see, you can't use the scientific method to prove that you were born on the date that you claim to be your birthday. Why? It's not repeatable, right? We can't go back in time and do that over and over and over and over again. 
but we accept it because we have documents. If I'm going to go and get a new passport today, there's, I have to present documents of my birth, my birth certificate, that I'm a citizen of the United States. And friends, this is precisely, in many ways, what the Bible is doing for us today. That there were eyewitnesses who saw Jesus Christ after he had risen from the dead. People who saw him, walked with him, and talked with him. I want to give you three other places that the New Testament writers claim to be eyewitnesses. We're not going to turn there today, but just if you're taking notes, I think these can be incredibly encouraging. First one is 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Paul is saying this. He says that there are 500 other brothers who Jesus revealed himself to after the resurrection. You know what Paul's saying? If you don't believe me, you can go and you can talk to some 500 other brothers, many of whom have not yet fallen asleep. He's saying they're not dead yet. So you can go and verify what I'm saying with 500 other people. 500 other witnesses. 2 Peter 1, 16-18, Peter says this. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales. You see, there are people who thought this whole resurrection thing was made up just as many people claim it is today. And the biblical writers were aware of this. And so Peter is saying, look, we're not following fables. We're not following these, these interesting tales. We're not being deceived. Peter says, I saw and beheld his glory. I saw Jesus. And then lastly, Luke 1.3, Luke says, I decided to write this gospel. And basically he's saying this, I decided to put it in chronological order for you as I remember it. And so we have not one eyewitness, we have at least four eyewitnesses throughout the New Testament claiming that they know that the resurrection is a historical fact. So we must embrace the reality of the incarnation and resurrection. The second thing we need to do, if we're going to have a sure faith, we need to trust that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. If we're going to have a sure faith, we need to trust that eternal life is found in Jesus Christ alone. Let's look at verses 2 through 3 together. 2 and 3. It says this, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Let's stop there. So what is happening then is, John is saying this, We have something, we have a message that we speak. We have a message that we proclaim. And this is an incredibly important message. If we don't do this next part, if we don't accept this next part, then you miss it. You miss the boat. You're not a part of the family of faith. You don't know Jesus Christ. And it's this. Eternal life is found in Him. Jesus is the Word of life. That's what He actually says of Him. And that has three big things attached to it. Number one... We need to understand that true life is not found anywhere else. If Jesus is the word of life, there's no, one, or there's no one else or nowhere else that I can turn to. We can't turn to success or fame or even some sort of religious lifestyle. There's nowhere else we can turn. We can't turn to other people. People let us down. People hurt us. We know that we live in a fallen world. We see the effects of sin through our relationships each and every day. People die. Our relationships won't last forever. What is eternal, what will last, is the person, Jesus Christ. The eternal life is found in the man who died and rose again because he was no mere man. 
Here's three quick, quick reasons that we can see Jesus is the eternal life. First of all, Jesus Christ is God the creator. He created and sustains all life. Hold your thumb right here in 1 John with me and flip to John's gospel. Flip to John's gospel with me. We're going to flip to John's gospel for just a minute because I want you to see this. In the book of John, we're going to read verses 1, 1 through 5. And we're going to compare it real quickly to what's in 1 John, verse 1. I want you to just see this phrase. He says, that which was from the beginning. Okay? That which was from the beginning. Now look and see what John had also written in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, Jesus is God the Creator. He was there at the beginning with the Father. Jesus has existed for all eternity. There was not a time where he came into being. He has always been. He is God himself. And so he created and sustains all life. He owns everything that we are. All of creation is his. So Jesus Christ is God the creator. The next thing we need to see is that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for our sins, but for the whole world. Look at 1 John Two verse 2. Just kind of stay where you are in First John and just look down just a little bit. It says this, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so here's the good news. We, each and every one of us, know and understand, if we're totally honest with ourselves, that we're fallen. We know that we're broken. We know that we mess up regularly. And what we need somehow is to be set right, to be recalibrated, to be made right with God. And there's only one way that's going to happen. It's not going to be us trying harder. It's not going to be us trying to become some better version of ourselves with a self-help book. It is only by trusting in the propitiation of Jesus Christ. What is a propitiation? It is an appeasing of the wrath of Almighty God. It is an appeasing of the wrath of Almighty God. Jesus took the cross. And there's a verse in the Gospels that said, I I love this, that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem like flint. Why did he have to do that? Because Jesus knew what was coming. He had to set his face toward Jerusalem like flint because there was a huge trial, a big test. All of history hung in the balance as he was setting his face toward Jerusalem because what would happen as he went there? He would be killed. He would be killed on a cross for you and for me. And if I don't trust that that was enough to forgive me of my sin, then I cannot have a relationship with God. Jesus died for our sins and for the sins of the entire world. How is that possible? How can one man die for the many? Because Jesus was God in the flesh. If he was not the incarnate God, if he was not incarnate Christ, we would not be forgiven. You know why? Because if a sinful man dies, guess what he gets? What he deserves. If I die, if you die, we get what we deserve. When Jesus died, he didn't deserve to die. He was perfect. Not only that, he was infinitely good. And so the infinitely good God stood 
in the place of what looks like infinite sin, the sins of the world. But our sins are numerable. They are not infinite. And so the infinite goodness of God was able to overcome the finite, terrible, fallen sin of our world. Jesus stood in our place. He is the propitiation of our sins. Lastly, we need to see this, that life is contained in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the perfect display of God's love for us. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. I just want us to hear this this morning. It says this, We have come to know and to believe what? To believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. And we'll talk about that as we preach through this series. But here's the, the big deal. Here's the main point that I think many of us need to hear today. God loves you. Amen. There it is. Can we say that again? God loves you. I think sometimes we have a hard time believing that, if we're totally honest. We think, yeah, I know God loves me. He puts up with me. But does God really like me? Does God really care for me? Is that actually true? Because the circumstances of my life don't really look like it right now. Is it actually true that God loves me even as I sin day in and day out and I fall short of his glory over and over and over again? Does God really love me? The answer is yes. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. How? Because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect display of God's love towards you and towards me. You see, love is demonstrated, I think, best in the giving of ourselves to another person. My sweet wife, I think, has been a great example of this to me recently. In the past seven weeks, we've had three bouts of sickness with Audrey. She gets sick, better for a week, gets sick again. Get better for a week, gets sick again. Get better for a week. Just keeps coming back around. On top of that, we've got an infant son who's nursing. And my sweet wife, I walked in the other day, middle of the night. She's got circles about this big around her eyes. And she's holding my infant son. And she's smiling at him. She's laughing. She's saying, I love you. Here's what she's doing. She's giving herself. Wearing herself out, even to the point where it looks like she doesn't have any more to give. She's wearing herself out for him and for my little girl over and over and over again. Guys, this is a fraction of the love that God has for us. He sent his son to reveal himself to you and to me. Jesus is the perfect display of God's love. There's assurance. There's hope. It doesn't matter how many times I mess up. God loves me. Thank you, Lord. This is the good news that Jesus Christ and nowhere else is the word of life. So we've seen, firstly... In these first couple of points, the way towards fellowship with God. Now, I want us to very quickly see the results of fellowship with God. We've seen the way of fellowship with God. We have to accept the historical facts. We have to have right doctrine. We have to have right belief. We need to trust in the word of life. We need to trust that Jesus was enough. And now I want us to see three marks, three things that come after that. Okay, three things that come after that. Let's look at verse kind of 3b, the second half of b, and following into verse 4. It says this. It says, 
so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Three markers, I believe, of fellowship. And they're encapsulated in this idea of joy. In this idea of joy. You see, he talks about that we want you to have fellowship with us. You see, you can't have fellowship with us, who's us, the believers, people who are orthodox, who truly know Jesus. You can't have fellowship with people who truly know Jesus if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And so the first big idea that we need to understand and see is that if I am a person who is following Christ, there is going to be a unity in my life with other believers. I'm going to be united with them around the word of God and the truth of the gospel. I'm going to fellowship with them. I'm going to connect with them. And what we have in common is not going to necessarily be our skin color. What we have in common is not going to be what we like to be entertained by, sports or movies or some other thing. What we have in common is one thing, but it's the most important thing. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And so that He is our living hope, just as we sang. That is what unites us. That is what brings us together. We have unity through Him. Secondly, as I've alluded to already, we have assurance. We have assurance of our faith if we're fellowshipping with God. Here's the way that plays out. If God is with me and I am regularly regularly encountering Him, working in and through my life, then I know where I'm going. I know that I am a true child of God. I understand that God is with me moment by moment by moment. There is not one thing that I encounter in this life that He hasn't already encountered with me, that He doesn't know and understand and see, that He is with me. And so I can be assured as I reflect on God's love for me. The last thing that I want us to see is this, holiness. I believe holiness is a mark of someone who knows Jesus Christ and is in fellowship with Him. Here's what that looks like. We had a, a man come and stand in this pulpit during our interim, a man that I grew to, to love dearly, Pastor John Marshall. And he had a phrase that I think many of you will remember. I think it's incredibly helpful. He said, personal holiness matters most. What does that mean? It means this. Personal holiness, the who you are with God and how you display your love for God in your own life on a personal level is the most important thing about you. Why? How is that true? Because who you are in secret is ultimately who you are. Who you are when no one else is around, who you are when when no one else is watching, is ultimately, in many ways, who we are. And so... If I am holy and setting myself apart, if I am devoting myself to God in the secret, in the quiet place, then I can turn and I can live a life of devotion that is set apart towards Him in the public place. We need to be marked by this holiness. And the irony of living a life of holy devotion to Jesus is this. It is not boring. Living a life of holy devotion to Jesus Christ in many ways in our culture is painted as boring. That it's not worthwhile. But the reality is, it is an incredible, grand adventure that is filled with great joy. When we live the way God has designed us to live, we experience joy, not boredom. Listen to me. 
When we live just for man-made rule-keeping, we experience boredom. When we live with Jesus, we experience joy. So, the question then is, do I have these markers in my life? Is Jesus, have I accepted him as the eternal, true word of God, the word of life? I'm going to ask you to go ahead and bow your head this morning.